out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bo Radleys, because I recently spoke to Simon Rowbottom to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Plus, um, talking about their new album, Eight. Also, they have got live shows in October, November 2023. And also, Simon, who also goes as Sice Rowbottom, or Sice Boo Radley's has got a solo show which is titled The Secrets of Happiness, which is going to be all about life, psychology and um, therapy. I think therapy, but there's going to be a lot about sort of understanding the deeper workings of one's mind. So anyway, I'll give you the link in the notes below. But that's going to be going on from basically early September to the end of September 2023. So um, anyway, we'll find out more about that. In this interesting interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Simon, it's over to you. Well, I think so. I mean, I think the the musical awakening was probably for me because I was born in 1969. So I think, um, I mean, I liked music um, sort of early stages. I remember the first thing that I really loved seeing on the television was... um, Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall. I remember that was the first single that I absolutely insisted that I had to had yes. to have. So, um, so it's probably about eight or nine then. But really, the awakening starts at the beginning of the eighties. Um, so you know, so uh, it was kind of anything that was uh, pop music then, the the kind of electro Duran Duran and kind of Depeche Mode, Human League, anything like that was um, was was kind of um, I mean, because basically all we had to kind of go on. I think was top of the pops. And the chart rundown, so um, and and smash hit. So anything really was um, was that that was my kind of a musical awakening. I think you know, I was a little bit too young. Sorry, that's my cat. A little bit too young for um, for Bowie and Glam. Uh, yes, but, but you kind of almost got the second iteration of that. Really, well, you'd have got Let's Dance, wouldn't you? Followed by um, yeah, Blue Jean and Never Let Me Down and stuff like that. I, I loved Blue Jean. I absolutely loved Blue Jean. Yeah. I wasn't. Yes. I wasn't a huge fan of Let's Dance, but um, but Blue Jean, I loved it. You couldn't it. really. You couldn't move without. You would have been fourteen at that stage, I think, in mm. eighty eighty three when he went. He went mega mega big with his mm. or um with his golden hair. So, did you? Were your parents at all musical? Did they sort of have no. any influence? No, they weren't. They um they were completely um I mean they they my dad sort of liked opera, Gilbert O'Sullivan, but really it wasn't a hugely musical household apart from the radio was on, you know, so that was really where I got the chart music from. The radio was on a Sunday. We used to listen to the chart rundown. Um, but really owned very, very few records. There were like three or four records that we we owned. Yes. Um, so so it was always kind of uh, difficult i mean one of the things that was an absolute godsend for me was kind of being able to um rent uh, or borrow records from the library that was one thing that um that was absolutely amazing that you could go around and you could rent vinyl yes. so that's what we did yes i think we had something like that in norwich where you would just pay 5 pound a year and you mm. could just take out yeah. three records that you would yeah. go home get your tdk d90 cassette and record <laughs> you know while while sort of home home taping is killing music isn't it so apparently. Yeah, apparently but i mean they were mostly record i mean they were great records but often you thought you know with that sort of moral dilemma when you're young think about i probably wouldn't have bought it but at least i've listened to it now so th- completely 
Yeah. You know, and if I do really like it, the tea, you know, I will one day want to buy the record. So, um, yes, it, it was. But also, I think when you're young, you want to sort of establish an identity, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. some sort of tribal thing. Because I had a did you have any brothers, older brothers or sisters that gave you any sort of push? I, I did. Um, my older brother, um, it was quite strange because that was my oldest brother was how old is he? Seven years older. And he I mean, he actually liked um Kind of strange music. He, he, well, it's not strange particularly, but he really liked Kraftwerk and Jean-Michel Jarre. He liked that sort of um, eight, uh, 1970s kind of electronica. Um, used to listen to Jean-Michel Jarre a lot. My my uh, brother, who was only five years old, was into punk, so we used to have a he used to have a lot of punk around. Yes. Um, and actually, the the band that he loved the most was the Stranglers. So, um, so I kind of followed him into that. I was a huge Stranglers fan for a while, mainly because those albums were sort of available to me. Um, so, yes, in the early eighties, the Stranglers were ever present. Um, and yeah, there were a few other bands, you know, that he, he would have around as well. I think Clash, Few Pistols, but um, yeah, strangely, it was the Stranglers that were a big influence for him. Well, I do remember, I think it was probably 1980 when, or 79, when Duchess came out. And mm -hmm. that was just, I just remember being absolutely amazed that it had such drama, that song, that you yeah. just couldn't help but fall in love with the band. I mean, yeah, I did love them. I love the fact you had a brother who was in, did you say Vangelis and people like that as well? Yeah, Vangelis, um, Vangelis, um, Jean-Michel Jarre. A uh, bit of craft work, as far as I remember. Oh, that's it. Sort of, and then yeah. was there was a guy called Patrick Morantz, who I think was in Yes for a while. It was because I had a brother, older brother, who was obviously seven years older than me. And he was very into prog, you know. So there was right, a kind of the right. Yes Genesis, Wishbone Ash, but then there was this kind of funny, kind of very. I mean, it's a bit sweeping to say it, but it didn't feel very soulful. It was very kind of mm. heady music for sort of clever mm. people trying to be a bit pretentious. So, um, but it was kind of interesting, you know, some mm. of it was good. I do still listen to, oh, it was the soundtrack to um, Midnight Express. There was a song. Oh, Giorgio Moroder did some of that work on Midnight Express. Uh, yeah, that, and there's one album. called yeah. the, the Chase, which is just. Yes. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I had that album. He actually had that album, and I remember that the chase. Yeah, um, no, totally. Yeah, I remember listening to that album. Um, yeah, that was a brilliant. That was the chase. I remember was a very sort of fast paced Giorgio Moroder mm -hmm. style. Yeah, did it. Yeah. yeah, really good. Really good. That, that was good. And then it was yeah. there was the other one, which was oh, Alan Parsons Project, which was very right. That was very, it was all up there, wasn't it, with all those kind of very, I don't know, then you liked mm. Steely Dan and and those sort right. of bands. So when you got to sort of 14, 15, what was your mm. kind of first ever single or record you bought at that stage? Well, the weird the weird thing was um, is that the, the band we were into when we were about 13 was the Stray Cats, and I have absolutely no idea why. There was a, a, a sort of a pocket of rockabillies at our school who we kind of introduced to the Stray Cats. I don't know whether Stray Cats Strut was the single or whether it was Rock This Town or one of those, but we got into, for a period of about, I don't know, it must have been 18 months, two years, we got into the Stray Cats in a in a big way, excuse me. But also, um, you know, we started then also kind of getting into the, the history of rockabilly a bit as well. Um, so uh, then we started kind of getting into Elvis and um, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, these kind of records, we started delving into those. Um, but really the chart records at the time was probably um, probably Duran Duran. Um, I never really liked Spandau, but, but really um, kind of 
any of those singles around the time. But then the other thing that we got into then at that time was the Beatles. You know, that's when we started to discover back catalogue. So that was that was the thing that at around that time, I think mid yeah mid eighties that was when we sort of uh, got into the Beatles in a big way, um, really started to go sort of go through the albums and really listen to the albums. Yeah, because it was strange because my brother had the yeah this was like seventy four seventy five he had um, Sergeant Pepper and and mm. at that time it's strange you know I'd sneak into his room and play this record. And um, and was kind of mesmerised, but there was no cultural context at that time. The beat, no. and I didn't. Re- and looking back, you think oh, they'd only broken up about three or four years, but it seemed yeah. like a completely different chapter in life. And it was like, oh yeah, that was. But they, you know, they were so young still. But at the time, yeah. they didn't seem young at all. It was no, you know, no. It was a very. I mean, that was the strange thing with the mid eighties. I mean, I think that was sort of the the kind of I guess if you will, their low point, when actually there wasn't a lot of attention. You know, John Lennon had long been dead, and I think it was kind of, um, the, God, they were never going to be forgotten, but, you know, it, there wasn't the, I guess, the cultural attention that there is on them now. It was at a low point. For example, you know, in Liverpool, where we grew up, you know, there was no sort of, there were no sort of marketing, no shops, no anything really. There was a little sort of Beatles museum, but it wasn't much. Yes. So, um, so it really started to build, I think, from that point on and I think there was um you know that's that's what I think that came through in the 90s was the kind of a lot of people who had this who kind of felt the Beatles were their own private discovery rather than this kind of huge um behemoth that it was in the 60s and maybe followed through to the 70s so it's it an interesting time to start getting into well, I think in that early 70s period, there were the Beatles films that came on and we used to watch them, you know, and be mm. like really mesmerised. And then you just heard mm. there was that those two compilations with the red yeah. cover and the blue cover. Yeah. And then, like I said, there was, you know, obviously Sergeant Pepper, which was just like a, mm. it was just a weird discovery that I, you know, I couldn't, you know, I was forbidden to play his records, but I'd go and play them and and be mesmerised yeah. with songs like yeah. Good Morning and thinking, God, that's so weird and A Day mm. in a Life and she's leaving home and just like the lyrics and at the same time I was really obsessed with people like the Carpenters and the lyrics of them were just, mm-hmm. you know equally fantastic and you mm-hmm. just thought you know at the time that was amazing and I can understand yeah. why I then loved Joy Division and the Smiths later because it was mm-hmm. all about alienation and heartbreak so mm-hmm. I think it was actually the CD reissues in the 90s that brought the Beatles somehow into yeah. our moment because up to then mm-hmm. Paul McCartney kept releasing albums which were terrible like give my give my something to yeah. Uh, give my regards to Broad Street was I, I, I because my kids hugely got into um, the Beatles recently and we actually sat down and tried to watch Give My Regards to Broad Street and it's absolutely appalling I mean just <laughs> really dreadful um, but you know there, there's so much other good stuff out there yes so when did when did things like the indie charts suddenly start to sort of that was around 85 86 i think i think the biggest the biggest sort of influence and the thing that changed everything was psycho candy was jesus and mary jane right i think um that was that was an album that just sort of changed everything and really kind of got us into um reading enemy melody maker sounds i think it was around then um and and really that was when we sort of really started to listen to you know John Peel by records the Bodines and the Wedding Presents Soup Dragons the real sort of indie stuff um, 
So that was, I mean, and I, I was always actually, that's one thing that my brother did, um, was brought home, now you mentioned it, brought home a copy of, in 1983, of This Charming Man, and um, and I was absolutely lost at that point. I mean, the Smiths were enormous to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think The Queen is Dead was probably one of my most played albums of the 80s. Um, so, so they were a, a huge, huge influence. Yes. Um, um, so yeah, so really from sort of 85 onwards, that was it really. That was the sort of, that was the love. Um, was Echo and the Bunnymen were huge. We start, That's when we started going down to London to see bands. I mean, I think the first time I ever went to London was to go down and see the Mighty Lemon Drops um, at the at the Kentish Town Forum or Town and Country, I think it was then. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a really big period um, for that. that was, and that was really kind of, I think then we started to branch out, listen to um, uh, Dinosaur Junior, My Bloody Valentine, probably first My Bloody Valentine album, and really sort of started getting into Creation Records then as well, and other Rough Trade acts. Yes, there you go. So when you came to 85, 86, you would have got yeah. to 16. Did you leave school at that stage, or did you go on? Well, it was kind of I mean I stayed on in sixth form but basically did nothing but play the guitar um so Tim from the Boo Radleys um we both stayed on in sixth form I think Martin when I think he was working at that point but basically I sort of stayed on in sixth form but did very little and I think I used to go in um get signed in on the register or whatever and then just we used to go around to Tim's house and just listen to music, smoke cigarettes, watch films, play guitars. Um, and that was it for about two years then, really. Yeah. Um, so well, until true. until I messed up my A-levels and was out on the streets. <laughs> yeah. So, that was, <laughs> so was it VHS cassettes you were renting as well at that stage? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was kind of, you know, it was it was uh, it was fabulous, really, because it was just kind of, you know, you had such a such a lot of time so sometimes you know you go down the video shop and rain two or three cassettes and buy a packet of cigarettes and then just watch films all night long and kind of and, and smoke all yes. night and it was <laughs> yeah fantastic real real as uh, cineast education it was great yes and were, were films like betty blue on your radar at this stage yeah betty blue was um i loved i loved betty blue um i loved the well, the, the version integral, the 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 proper long one, because it makes it such a different film. Yes. Um that was yeah, but it was kind of that cinema paradiso. Um, I mean, we just grabbed anything to be honest. So it was kind of um yeah, it was it was a really good time for to get a lot of uh, a lot of obscure kind of American films as well. Yes, God, I suppose the Razorhead would have been in there, wouldn't it? And then yeah, yeah. Raisin Arizona and f- films like that. Like, mm. yes, it was it was great. You just sort of, sort of go and just like you said, you just grab anything on a VHS yeah. cassette, take it, yeah. record it, and and just like consume it all. So, did you? When did you? You bought the guitar. Were you, was was kind of again music your sort of go to thing? Because there's a been there's a lot of bands in the eighties, but in the early there was a huge amount of unemployment obviously we had Thatcher mm. in 79 then we had the the Falkland Wars the miners you know stri- um, mm. rioting, mm. and then we had Greenham Common so you know and there was a huge amount of unemployment with um, job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes that people could sort of sign on be, mm. you know mm. be sort of a year sort of self-employed yeah. artist gardener painter mm. 
Do, yeah, so I think a lot of people went, oh, well, we'll just be in a band and then we'll all get yeah. nuked and then we'll all die and that'll be the end of it. Did did, mu- yeah. did music kind of, was it the thing that you were thinking, this is this is the only plan we've got at this stage? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There was there was never any other plan. I mean, I had a very, very depressing year when um, I basically had to get a job. So I worked in sort of retail, uh, worked in pound stretcher for a year and it was really depressing. And um, But at the time, that was the first year probably around 1987 I think that was might have been 88 um that we were actually playing our first gigs that was when we were sort of actually getting out and playing in little pubs I don't think we even had a drummer then I think we had a drum machine so it was kind of me Martin and Tim drum machine and actually playing our first sort of 25 minute 30 sets 30 minute (laughs) sets um so music was the only thing and actually when it got to about 1989, I think that's when um, I went back to do my A-levels again because there was this thing where you could sign on and you didn't have to be job-seeking as long as you were in education. So yeah. if you could prove you were in education, you could get income support, which just, which you know, that um, that managed to keep us going as a band. Um, I think we were all on kind of income support for the first sort of two years that we we were basically traveling up and down the motorway in the back of a van. Yes. Um, so music was the only way out. Music was, um, yes, you're right. I mean, I look back in the depressed, uh, the 80s were quite a depressing time. It's really, really interesting. Um, one of the films that, because my, um, my son ended up studying um, film at university, and one of the films he's absolutely obsessed with is Threads. Um, he just says Threads is just so, so dark. So, and, and, I've watched it with him and it's just absolutely incredible because you imagine how powerful that would have been in about 1985 when... Was um, that the one with Julie Christie in? No, Threads was was written by... Oh, who was it written by? (sighs) Can't remember. I think it was the guy who did the screenplay for Kess. Um, But um, it, it, it was basically a TV drama by BBC and I think it was in two parts across two nights and it basically shows the family a sort of it starts off as a kind of soap opera in Sheffield but at the same time interspersed with sort of tensions with Russian on the Russian and Afghanistan border and things increasing and essentially sort of halfway through there's a, a nuclear blast in Sheffield and it's essentially what kind of happens then but what, what what's fantastic is that you know it's not What's um, amazing is it's not hugely dramatised in terms of kind of, you know, you see sort of buildings flying and stuff. But what's absolutely fascinating is the sort of the mundanity afterwards of kind of councils in underground bunkers trying to get radio connection, trying to work out what's going on, where they can get clean water and things just not working. It's really kind of... um, very, very dystopian and very, very disturbing. Yes, because there was another one which came out around, I suppose, the early 80s, which was gained because part of it was filmed in Norwich in this kind of street that had been abandoned. It was kind of um, to do with kind of post, post-apocalyptic kind of world, but I can't remember what that one was called. It was, yeah. again, it was, it was one of those ones that a lot of these old crusty punks all sort of appeared in because they didn't even have right. to get dressed for it so um yeah they seen there was a lot of films like that because then there was the yeah. that book called or that kind of graphic novel or have graphic something um uh, when the wind blows, when the wind isn't blows. It? yeah yeah very similar really i mean very similar the, the when the wind blows was um 
was um, uh, Raymond Briggs, wasn't it? Who kind of who, who David Bowie appeared at the front of the Snowman, didn't he? Doing the um, where the Raymond Briggs, the Snowman. They had a sort of cameo from David Bowie at the front of the Snowman, which is very bizarre. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, no, there was there was a lot around that because there was a genuine fear. You know, there was a genuine fear of growing up in the in the nineteen eighties that this was where we were headed. You know, with yes. the kind of t- Cold War tensions. There is an amazing, there is an, an amazing thing. I think it might be on the World Service where this Russian gets the, oh, you know, the kind of the code to say launched a nuclear bomb, mm-hmm. and then he th- and he has this kind of, I don't know if that's right, but that that is the code that I've got to launch the nuclear, mm-hmm. and he decides not to, and you're thinking, yeah. oh my god, yeah. <laughs> so, that's really quite incredible. Yeah, you know, he should have lost his job. So there you go. <laughs> his, his his personal development, <laughs> they sacked him. He said, "Look, you know." But yeah, you just thought, you know, it was only because he just thought, "I'm not quite sure of the lights." You, you know, that is what mm-hmm. I should do. But you think, "Oh wow, that would have changed." Oh yeah, because we had Chernobyl, and then we all yeah. got worried because we used to try and drink barley cup as a coffee substitute, and then someone said, "Oh, that's grown in Poland, so you're going to die as well." Yeah. So there was always death around, wasn't there? In the eighties, yeah, completely there was. And then <laughs> and then of course, you know, we had um, we had the AIDS epidemic and you know there was a, a TV adverts of kind of saying you know AIDS don't die of influence and great big tombstones and stuff it was actually quite terrifying yes. to grow up um you know to grow up in the 80s. I don't know if you've read James Brown's kind of book um, Animal House no. but the first half is brilliant because it's all about mm. Leeds growing up in that 80s and he talks mm. about well, he I did an interview and he talks about that being quite terrifying. And that's yeah. absolutely brilliant. That bit with being a fanzine writer and the NME mm. and stuff. I I mean, it's it's kind of worth it as a sort of oh yeah. yes, that yeah. was what the 80s was like. When did you discover Eric's, by the way, or had that been and gone by? No, Eric's was I was too young for Eric's. Eric's was probably Eric's was probably going to 77, 78. Um, so I was a bit young for Eric's. I think my brother did go over to Eric's quite a few times. Um, I mean, somebody on Twitter, occasional flyers come up for Eric's and it's just absolutely incredible. You know, to see the bands that are on at Eric's. It's just like, yes. wow, that's brilliant. So I think um, anybody had a venue, an alternative night venue during that late 70s, 80s. That's mm. just ridiculously good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You yeah. know, it makes up for the, you know, Chernobyl and, you know, AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. But, but look, then, yeah. seven, then, then 80, 87, you know, it's a JFK mm. moment when, you know, where were you when you heard the Smiths had broken up? And there was a kind of, for me, there was that end of the indie pop world with, you know, all those bands like the Wolfhounds and the June Brides. I mean, the Mighty Lemon Drops did sort of continue, but that kind of glory period. And then there was that next wave of 16, 18 year olds appearing and there was ecstasy and there was the dance scene and then there was shoegaze yeah. and then Seattle. How did you kind of think, oh my God, where do we fit into this? I think the biggest, info, I mean, I think the one that sort of uh, probably held it together for us at that point was the Pixies. I think the Pixies were the next band that came along. So I don't know when the first stuff was maybe that was maybe 88 89 so that was uh, there was other stuff happening i think the stone roses were probably happening then which we didn't really understand um because actually one of the other bands that had seen us through was primal scream we really liked primal scream in in that kind of era when they did what was the was it sonic flower groove i can't remember yes. um so we liked sonic flower groove which we kind of thought when the stone roses came out was just the same thing really we were kind of like okay well it's primal scream so um so i think the pixies were the big one and i think dinosaur junior were and then 
um my bloody valentine were what we kind of crossed over into i can't remember what year um isn't anything came out but that was that was another um piece of vinyl on heavy rotation and yeah. i think really that that was the so the pixies my bloody valentine uh dinosaur junior kind of blueprint gave you know that gave us our what right this is what we need to go for this is what we can do this is what we can be good at um so it was kind of you know because we we sort of we we wrote pop music that was the weird thing is that we you know that was the sort of mary chain blueprint as well we we wrote pop music but we were really sort of messy with it as well so it, that kind of very much fitted and we loved the dynamics we loved that kind of loud quiet dynamics that we were quite good at as well um that i think the 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 pixies influence was there so i think that was the sort of transition over really and then um other bands started to um started to pop up around the same time as us i think that was i think a lot of bands probably were like that because you started to you know ride started to pop up and i guess who was you know i guess the um the, well, there was the, a sort of a North London scene, wasn't there? Because I remember seeing my bloody Valentine around, you mm. know, feed me, feed me with your kisses as mm. well, and and that kind of eighty nine period. And Silverfish yeah. was supporting them. Silverfish, that's right. Then you had the Faith Healers, and then there was Carter, mm. and then yeah. it was this kind of funny little scene that was coming out of that kind of kind of lots yeah. of feedback. And and then you had Sarah Records, which were doing their kind of shoegazy yeah. stuff, and um, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of, it was, I think when a change, a decade changes, it's quite interesting. Mm, it's mm, a little yeah. bit of a, a jolt. And then, you know, I, I remember getting Bleach and seeing Nirvana supporting mm. Tad at the Art Centre. Oh, wow. wow. And thinking, I didn't stay for Tad, but I thought they were brilliant. I loved mm. Bleach. I thought it was such a great sound. And yeah. and Sonic Youth had brought out, you know, there was of course, yeah. Daydream yeah. Nation and then Goo came out and then... Mm. It was like, oh god, this is this is really good. So for a fan, yeah. it's amazing. But I just wondered, as as an artist, how you start to wonder where things are going to be fitting because the Smiths suddenly were very old hat, weren't they? Well, they were, and it's really strange actually because I don't I don't remember being. I think I'd already probably started to move on a little bit. I mean, I don't remember being devastated when the Smiths split. I mean, I think I thought that it was probably a temporary thing as well. I think I didn't think it would be the end. Um, but I think I'd probably sort of moved on a little bit. I think um, at that stage. But um, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, we were sort of, you know we was by that stage actually starting to meet the bands and play with the bands and so that was that was really good i remember we um talking about uh silverfish um the person that used to let us stay in his house all the time was gary walker from ouija records oh yes um he was a absolute fabulous guy and so you know he he um we we sort of got introduced to lots of stuff and through that and so so we we kind of um yeah that's when we sort of came down to london uh was that the time we may have met Swerve Driver at that point. You know, we were crossing paths with with lots of people. We 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 were actually sort of yeah, we were on we were on Rough Trade at the same time as Carter. Um, so we were kind of we were playing with everybody. That was the strange thing. One of the strange things about us as a band was we seemed to be able to sort of traverse different little groups. You know, we could play um with Carter, but then we could also play with somebody far more poppy and the popping jays and people like that we used to play with. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. So um so yeah, we we used to sort of um traverse quite a few scenes really. Yes, that's which is kind of handy. So you mm. then you got down to recording the first your your debut album. Did mm. did you have everything completely 
well rehearsed and like a well oiled machine when you went in the studio. No, I mean that that was the, the strange thing, really. That that very first album we made, we we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, I always think I always think of that first album as a demo tape. Really, um, we'd done sat like a few little home demos, but basically the reason why we got to make it was that there was a band called the Dandelion Adventure, who were around Preston at the time, and they were um, they put some vinyl out with um, a record in Preston, a record shop in Preston called Action Records, and we. We played with the Dandelion Adventure and the guy who ran Action Records said, you know, do you want to put some vinyl out? So we said, yeah. So he stuck us in a studio in Manchester called Out of the Blue. Um, and I don't think we knew what we were doing and the engineer didn't know what he was doing. Um, I think he was far more used to doing dance music. So it came out a very odd little piece of vinyl, very sort of, yeah, very, very odd sounding. So, I mean, I think we were, you know, that gave us a bit of a um, John Peel that was the first time John Peel played us. And so um, that then introduced us to Rough Trade. And I think then that was when we started actually making records. Those first, what we did was I think Jeff Travis wasn't that sure about us, I don't think. So I think he, before he trusted us with a full album, I think he wanted to sort of us to do a series of EPs. Yes. So we did we did three EPs um, with four tracks on each. Um, and they were really good. I mean, I think they really start starting to sort of capture our sound and capture who we were at that particular point. But you got a John Peel session quite early with, with the famous Dale Griffiths, didn't you? <laughs> yes, we did. I think we did a couple. Yes, I mean, I think that was essentially um, the first one. I don't know whether it's recorded anywhere, but I think when John Peel heard the first album, heard Ichabod and I, I think... Um, I think we went down uh, with, with, yes, I remember driving down. We we, we were friends with um, a band from Liverpool called Dr. Fibes and the House oh, of yes. Wax Equations. So, um, so they all piled down. I think we all went along to the, um, uh, to the Peel session. Yes. And the, the famous Dale Griffin was uh, quite irascible. I think he, he had quite a reputation. Yes. Um, most, but, most people had a, quite a bad time with him, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, there was, I, I do remember a little altercation with Martin about the, 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 the level of the guitars and kind of him sort of saying something, Martin saying, turn them up, turn them up. And Dale saying, well, you must have, you must be deaf if you can't hear those kind of things. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was, um, it was never, it was never terrible, but it was never a hugely enjoyable experience either. But that must have been a slight blessing from in 1990 to get a appeal session so quickly. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was absolutely, I mean, you know, bless him. He was, he was incredible. I mean, I think that was the reason we sort of got on the map. And actually, you know, I think the reason we got signed to Rough Trade um, was, you know, if you get John Peel's blessings, then people pick up their ears, you know, straight away. So it was, it was incredible. And, um, and it just sort of fired us into the kind of indie consciousness straight away. Yeah, but Rough Trade had had that massive financial disaster, didn't they? The the distribution. Yeah. So, were they in a position to to finance that? No, that's the real thing. We didn't really realise how precarious the finances were. You know, I was just, oh my god, it's Rough Trade, it's the Smiths, it's just, you know, it's these people I'd heard of, it's Jeff Travis. You know, I, I, we were just absolutely. It's incredible that they they wanted to sign us, but I, I wonder whether now actually, you know, it was the financial position that actually meant that he, why Jeff wanted us to put out um, uh, EPs instead, right. Um, but to be fair, you know, the first album, um, the first album proper, I suppose, Everything's All Right Forever, um, was recorded for Rough Trade. They paid for that. Um, and then 
Jeff basically said, um, yes, Rough Trade was going under and um, he couldn't afford to put the album out, basically. Um, and what happened then was our manager also managed Slow Dive. Um, right. And he basically took the recorded um, took the recorded uh, album to Alan McGee, I think, and basically just said, look, the album's there. Um, do you want it? And I think Alan basically said, yes, well, if I don't have to go to any effort. Um, oh, so, yeah. He didn't like yeah. your manager, though, did he, Alan? Um, he says he didn't. Uh, oh no, hang on. That was that. Yeah, that was the later one. No, he didn't like the manager later on. Um, Richard Hermitage, who was the first manager. I didn't uh, rate their management. Yeah, that's the that's the Peter Felstead management. That's later on. The, he didn't like our management, and that's what's that's what's hilarious about Alan is that Alan always likes to paint himself as a as a grizzled old punk, and like a lot of grizzled old punks, he's very very interested in money. And so the only reason he didn't like our management is that our management would often um, ask for money. You know, would often ask for tour support, which Alan really didn't like. Um, you know, it, it's kind of. Um, but it's kind of like, well, that's that's business, you know. Because he, yeah, because there would been a few kind of, I mean, there were some bizarre bands on Creation Records during the eighties, mm. which I just thought, wow, they must have lost money. And then there was another couple of projects, which must have lost, even one that featured Tinder Swinton, Tilda Swinton. And oh, was that the, the most bizarre avant-garde album? Which must have been great for the artist, but terrible for him. But he signed Sugar. They, they did, got, yeah, 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 yeah. And that that was the kind of I think that was the one went ching ching because mm -hmm. it, it yeah. was just an instant massive hit. And you know, yeah, that for yeah. Copper Blue, wasn't it? Copper and Blue that, was a great album, absolutely great album. And I think one of the, I, one of the and, greatest singles, I think, in If I Can't Change Your Mind, which is just yes. um amazing single. It was, and I'd went to you know, because I loved Huskadoo or Huskadoo mm -hmm. as they call it. And I think Bob Mould's solo album, which was a work book just yeah. didn't it was great but it just yeah. the production's a bit weird actually it's very yeah. tinny and but the songs are good but it just would have bombed and I don't think anyone was yeah. kind of going to rate the next one and I think Alan just went oh I'll I'll take it and it just yeah you know was was the big one yeah. so that was a good time to be on creation records wasn't it that, well that was it was a great time because we our first american tour was with sugar we supported sugar um all over america which was just an incredible time for us we absolutely loved that um so yeah um sugar came down to see us and, and bob at that stage bob mole kind of thought we were a sort of punk band he used to say oh you're punk as fuck to to us and um but it was it was a great it was a great thing to be on creation yeah we got to tour with sugar um yeah and we had a lot of friends there you know ride were great swerve driver were great um you know they were all kind of um yeah lovely people we had a great time yes and was that um the first kind of proper album was that generally a good experience it was generally. I mean, I think we we outgrew it fairly quickly. I think that was the strange thing. It was the, the recording of Everything's All Right Forever was a bit strange because I think mentally we we'd kind of outgrown it, and I think we were ready to do other stuff. But we had this kind of almost this cache of songs that we'd been working on for the sort of I don't know year previously that kind of almost needed to be gotten rid of. We almost needed to clear the decks. Um, so it was. I mean. 
I think, you know, we unfairly probably malign the influence of kind of Ed Buller. Um, sometimes uh, having a producer and being pushed down one route, but I think he did what he could do with the material that we were putting in front of him. I think we were just, it was it was an unfortunate thing because I think it was almost a kind of transitional period for us that we could have done with just kind of waiting a bit longer and then maybe done something new. Um, but it was it, it was fine. It wasn't. I, I don't think it's a great record. You know, everything's all right forever. It's okay. But... <laughs> yeah. So, what was it like the atmosphere for the band for when you did Giant Steps? Was that was were you, did you have a bit more of a clear focus of what the what the band was at that stage? I think what we were what we were then was ourselves. I think that was what was really interesting was because um and that's that's you know, that is uh Alan and Dick Green's, that's how they were with bands, you know, nobody else in their right mind, because they said, What do you want to do? And we said, Well, we just want to go and record an album and we don't want to do it with a producer. We just want to be in the studio ourselves. And they just said, Go on then, you know, and nobody else in their right mind would have said that. You know, they they really um, you know, they really trusted musicians, especially after everything they'd gone through with My Bloody Valentine. Um, so I think the reason it happened was that we just I don't think we I think we just went in and we threw whatever we could think of at Giant Steps. And and so I think a lot of these influences just kind of came out. And that's what it felt like. It just felt like a bit of a playground. And um, we just went with um, what sort of came out at the end, really, which is why I think it ended up being a sort of 17 track album, because it just it was basically just like, right, well, this is what this is what we've got at the end. This is what we'll put out. Yes. Um, mm. And you were you, you you expanded the sound of the band as well at this stage. Did you had, had yeah. you started to experiment a bit more? We we had it was one of those things. It was it was a fortuitous thing that we'd already recorded Lazarus, and I think a song off Everything's Alright Forever had a trumpet as well. So I think on the, actually on the American tour with Sugar, we'd introduced a trumpet player um to to the band and so we had a trumpet player and when we came back we got another trumpet player for live but he was um i think he was at a music school so he knew lots of other people who could play other things so we basically would just say you know who else do you know cello player yeah get them down viola player yeah get them <laughs> down you know oboe whatever anybody who can play anything bring them down see if they see what we can get it on so it was just a kind of you know experimentation was the key thing you know it wasn't we didn't want it to be just a band album really then i think at that point that it was it was almost kind of like without sounding too grandiose it was like that beatles thing when you suddenly realize you don't have to do these things live necessarily yes. you sort of take the view that um that you create in the studio and then worry about that later on i mean had the, had the um the dance scene and ecstasy did that play a part in the band at all not really i mean it it kind of passed us by i think it, it, it you know we certainly weren't people who went to raves i mean there was the few there was a few kind of escapades with ecstasy but the, i don't think the music really thrilled us particularly um no i don't i don't think it did to be honest yes that's quite strange yeah it's mm. not strange but there you go and then yeah. you did another two john peel sessions didn't you in kind did of two in two in 91 did we oh okay yes i i, I honestly don't remember <laughs> i mean i think <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know how that happened then. Because um, you did one with Mike Robinson in 91, which had, um, you did Alone Again or something oh, soon, she said. Foster's yeah, band and yeah, Eleanor, yeah. everything. 
Oh wow, okay. So that was so we were still we were still playing stuff off Ichabod and I, but there was new stuff coming in there, I think. Yes. Um I think yeah, I think we would I mean actually I think that was probably when we first started to work with Rob, the drummer, because we changed drummers quite a lot between sort of eighty nine ninety um so yeah so we did that john peel i don't have a i don't i only have a memory of one peel session although yes. I think we probably did two or three but i only have memory of one because there was that kind of fashion as the 90s progressed the john major years you know mm-hmm. there was like my life story and then there was like every band and there was mark armand every band started to get a, a string section and a bit of an orchestra mm-hmm. that started mm-hmm. to appear had that kind of was that something that the band quite enjoyed the the idea of feeling that yeah. and yeah absolutely i mean you know that we we did it the, the big time we did it and i don't think it worked very well actually was um creation undrugged at the royal albert hall i think in 94 My, yeah probably 94 so um bob mold played it this was when alan had just become unwell i think so Bob Mole played it. I think Ride played it. Uh, Noel Gallagher did it on his own. And we played it and we had an orchestra. I think 20 or 30 people we got from this music school that our trumpet player had. Um, so we did a few songs with an orchestra. And, and, and again, I mean, it was exciting. It was just exciting to try different things. You know, we always we were always about novelty. And, and actually, yeah, it was always exciting to try different stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. Were you? Did you watch the Beatles film, the eight-hour film? Yeah. Of them? Yeah. Did that? Absolutely. Did that bring back memories of your your own experience recording or creating? Not really, because the thing the thing that they did, what it seemed to do a lot that we never enjoyed was jamming. You know, just kind of sitting around, kind of aimless playing and and inventing. We were far more sort of focused when we had to record. You know, the the demos were kind of already done. We didn't have the luxury of kind of being able to just sit around in a studio and kind of write and you know hang around i mean they obviously did but when we used to go into a studio it was a very expensive endeavor so things things you had to know what you were doing um before you went in you know things had to be sort of planned and ready to go um so so they were so so it didn't bring back a lot of memories in that regard um no, but it was absolutely incredible to watch. What, what about the personal dynamics? Because it was kind of interesting, some of the conversations that were being recorded mm. that they didn't know. Did did that make you um, kind of go, oh, God, yes, I've had one or two of them. Where the, oh, the, 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 yeah. the flower pot was mic'd, wasn't it? And yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was that was that was incredible. Yeah, just to hear, you know, when they think they're not sort of being recorded. And that was that was lovely to hear the kind of. Um, I guess the discussion, I guess the, one of the interesting things was the fear of being the leader almost, you know, it was kind of, you know, Paul saying to John, you know, I don't want to be the leader, you know, you've always been the leader. And, um, but for us, um, yeah, the dynamics were always there. I mean, they are for any group of people, you know, any group of people um, that would happen. The time it would mostly come out um, was on tour. I think on tour was kind of where, you know, cliques form, partnerships form, scapegoating happens, whipping boys happen. They all 
sort of classic group dynamics happened. I think in the studio we were able to escape it more. I think yes. I was, we were able to sort of stay away from it because you didn't have to always be present. There were times that, you know, you could disappear for a couple of days if if you weren't particularly involved. Yeah. And what was it like with the touring circuit? Because there's the little kind of art centres and the little mm. punky clubs and then you get the bigger venues and then the, mm. the university circuit and then another circuit. Were you kind of progressively going up and up at that stage? Up until up until about 1997, um, and this was one of the biggest frustrations. Yes, up until about 1997, we were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and playing bigger. Yeah, going to the sort of I guess the the big theatre level, Shepherd's Bush Empire, Royal Court Theatre, all these kind of ones. Um, but then I think that's when we sort of stalled. That was when sort of I think Come On Kids came out in 97, which wasn't a big success, and so. It was almost kind of like it was almost a kind of like a PR thing of people saying, oh, well, you know, we can't quite get you to the next level yet. So we can't really find the right venues. You know, we don't want to sell the next level of venues and half fill them. So yeah. it was always this thing of kind of the strange thing of saying, oh, we can't kind of find the right venues for you, um, which is just frustrating, really, because a lot of the time we just wanted to be out and play. Yes. Um, so we spent a lot of time uh, in other territories, really. We spent a lot of time in Europe, spent a lot of time in America. But, but we really didn't play in the UK much after about 95, 96, I don't think. You're right. Not many gigs. Um, we ended up playing supports to a lot of people. One of the big tours we did, we supported Manic Street Preachers in about 97, I think. God. Um, so, so we, yeah, so, so sort of doing our own gigs was always kind of difficult by that point. Blimey. Because uh, you did, you went and were, played or recorded in Rockfield, didn't you? What was did, that experience yeah. like? Because obviously I've seen the documentary and yeah. it. it's a great story, isn't it? The Rockfield. It is. I mean, the, the, I love that documentary. That was absolutely brilliant. And it was absolutely as it, as it was portrayed. You know, the reason, the reason we went to Rockfield was that um, we had a bit of a reputation as a, as a party band. And so when we were recording in London, we couldn't get a lot of work done because people were forever dropping down you know anybody from the record company friends management stuff would drop it down and and you know we didn't really need much excuse to kind of down tools and go off to the pub so rockfield kind of um initially gave us a bit of discipline it was a kind of like well look there's nothing else to do you're in the middle of nowhere you're miles from the nearest pub so um so kind of this will this will you'll do work and we did for a long time but then it kind of started to go a bit strange then you sort of the isolation and the sort of cabin fever bit you, you just <laughs> end up kind of starting to do kind of strange things keeping strange hours and yeah so it's a little bit little bit weird that yes. you live live in the same place that you're recording you know there was no there was no structure to the day so you end up in this sort of strange uh with nail and i kind of twilight time the shining yes mm. indeed how long were you there for for that that really? that first first i think six or seven weeks was the first i think what we, we record we recorded wake up there didn't we yeah so i think that took about six or seven weeks that first one but we went back a few times uh yeah we did come on kids there as well so i think um both times there were probably a couple of months at a stretch yes were you kind of aware when you did that album the impact that you know the singles were going to have on the on the band and no no we didn't really I mean it was it was it was again it was such a strange thing because 
you know, Giant, we look back and, you know, Giant Steps is just had a vinyl re-release and everyone talks about what a fabulous album it was and how big it was. But it sold less than 60,000 copies, you know, which at that stage, you know, for a for a sort of a critically lauded album, you know, that was getting album of the year in newspapers and stuff, it was, wasn't very much sales at all. And even though, you know, you look back and think oh, that was a great album, Creation D really didn't sort of, um, you know, the whole money thing was really on their mind and what they really wanted was chart singles you know because ride had charted and plenty of other acts had charted i think even oasis had probably charted by then and we hadn't so um so and, and even got to the extent where i think lazarus lazarus which was recorded before giant steps was actually re-released off the album to try and get into the charts and still failed got to like number 41 or something so when we went away i think the pressure was on uh, to to produce a hit single um and we probably uh went too far you know that was the thing is that that song we knew it was a good song and we recorded it once but it was kind of almost in the style of giant steps and it was kind of like oh is it a bit too indie and um, we end up going back and re-recording it and making it more pop and just, you know, I don't think we expected um, quite the way it took off and quite the way it stuck around. Mm-hmm. And I guess what that would do to us as a band, I guess the fact, I guess, I guess we didn't realise what it would take, I suppose, to recover from that, really. Yes, um, this is this is it. This is the moment. It all can go terribly mm, peculiar, can't it, really? Mm, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, from an indie band to some, you know, massive mm. success. <laughs> yeah. Had, had, well, had, which, which, sorry, go on. I was going to say, you had, had sort of, issue, you know, had kind of people's behaviour started to sort of get a bit odd at this stage? Um, What, within the band? Yes. I'm not sure. I mean, I think part of the problem is, is that, I don't, you know, once you're once you're at the eye of the storm, once you're in the middle of it, you don't really notice it. I mean, I think we had, yeah, we probably had started to get a bit odd. There was always, we were always about kind of shenanigans and escapades kind of thing, and none of it was ever any bad. But we were just, we were drinkers, you know. I think that's what what we were, and it wasn't sort of, you know, it was just really getting overexcited, messing about, laughing, playing music. That was kind of what it was, but. Um, no, I think, I think, you know, I think when the wake up thing happened, I think we just thoroughly enjoyed it. I think we just really, really loved it. The, 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 the actually it was actually happening. You know, we got to do top of the pops. Um, I just don't think we thought about what it would mean. You know, I think we just thought, I think it was just, it was a ride and it was like, yeah, let's just enjoy the ride. Yes, I do. I do. Because there was those amazing shine compilations that started coming out, didn't they, mm, on a regular? Yeah. And and then, you know, obviously the term Britpop appeared mm. and then Select Magazine. And it suddenly, you know, yeah. those those kind of latter part of the John Major years became so yeah. kind of golden, weren't they? So um, yeah. I could imagine. The, I, I think when you're in the Islander Storm, it's probably quite calm. It's like the bits around it mm. are probably chaotic did you play many festivals at this stage had you hit the glass we did yeah yeah we did uh we did uh, i mean we did one of the my favorite ones which we did we'd done we'd done reading in we've done reading twice i think yes i think we did reading in 93 where we played in the tent and i think giant steps had just come out and that was a fabulous gig then in 94 we did the second stage um of Glastonbury and it was incredible actually because somebody somebody on Twitter posted um 
a sort of running order of that Glastonbury in 94. And basically on the second stage, I think on one day, you could see Oasis, Blue Radley's, Radiohead, Superglass, Manic Street Preachers. You know, it was just kind of <laughs> uh, kind of who's who. And, and so that was a fabulous gig. And then we weren't supposed to do it in 95, but we were a last minute replacement for I think Rod Stewart pulled out for some reason. And so we ended up doing the main stage on the Saturday afternoon, which was very weird, um, very strange. And then I don't think, and, and then I think we were, we did tea in the park. We did failure in Ireland. We did lots of festivals. Yeah. Uh, Ross Kilder, you know, so a lot of the European ones. So I think around that time from about 1994 uh, to 97, that was probably the time we were doing a lot of yes. festivals. Oh, and the other one we did was we did Lollapalooza in '96. Oh. We were on we were on Lollapalooza in '96, which was a very very weird experience. Did you meet Mickey and Lush at this stage? No, well, um, we knew Mickey. Um, Mickey did. Mickey had done the uh, the first Lollapalooza because um, uh, I know Mickey really well. Um, and just read a book. Actually, a book's fantastic if you haven't read it. It's yes. absolutely incredible. Um, so uh we knew them around the time um martin was very good friends with chris ackland um who 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 sadly um died by suicide and um they were with our management company as well so um we knew them really well and actually um yeah mickey was uh going out at the time with a good friend of ours so we kind of yeah we knew mickey really well um but yes. our, our lollapalooza was actually this was the strange thing. All Lollapalooza was actually two or three years after the first one and they'd expanded it. So we were actually on what was called the second stage, which was essentially just a truck in the car park, which was so bizarre. It was very, um, you know, there were a lot of, there was us, there was Stereo Lab, um, Shudder to Think were on there. I can't remember who else we had. Um, so we had all all those people on the sort of second stage and the main stage was Green Day, uh nick cave beastie boys um can't remember who l7 so right. um it was a very very strange experience to kind oh, of that's, be that's such a, Shud a i love Shud i think shudder to think are amazing but um because mm. did you see the the woodstock 99 film where because those heavy bands started to appear and lad absolutely culture, yeah and... completely i mean it was so it was so obvious that Woodstock '99. It was like, look, the difference between the the first one and this one is the music, you know, and the people leading it. Everybody's from the stage in the first one is saying peace and love and look out for each other. And the, you know, the second one you got Limp Biscuit kind of screaming, smash everything up, and being frat boys. So it was, um, you know, that's one of the things that we did see. You know, one of the things that we saw was, you know, they were they were wall to wall frat boys at, at Lollapalooza, which were kind of you know they weren't really that interested and it was a very sort of corporate thing you know it was so bizarre seeing at the front of Lollapalooza on the main stage um that they would have these bought out areas and seats for all the corporate people who want to come along and see Beastie Boys and Green Day but you know Nick Cave's playing in the afternoon and there's nobody there so his audience you know are, are like 400 feet away so he's just got this very bizarre setup it was it was odd really it odd. must have been very strange mm. so then when you i mean at this stage had you wanted to start writing as well for the band yeah well i mean the, this is the weird thing is that you know the the 
the way it went was that we all used to write. I mean, we all did the early demos um, before we sort of started actually putting stuff onto vinyl were all three of us writing. And I think for whatever reason, um, it just seemed to drift towards Martin doing Martin songs. Um, and then I think, you know, you know, so we'd always kind of written. And then I think it was probably 95 around that time. Um, I just happened to have a load written. Um, and um, there were, I think there were sort of discussions going on about whether these songs should be on Boo Radley's albums. And it, I think there were sort of discussions going on behind the scenes at Creation or whatever. Um, and, and Mark Bowen, who was um, Creation A&R at the time, came and said, oh, you know, we think you should do a solo album. So I ended up kind of doing this um, solo album um, called uh, Eggman, which was, yeah, it was very bizarre. Um, but it was but it was really good fun. I mean, that was a I, I really, really enjoyed that because that was um, it was a bit like the help album that we did, where you basically sort of write something very quickly. You go in, you record it very, very quickly. And I had a lot of guest musicians. So I was basically just people were turning up at the studio and I was like, OK, play on this one, play on that one. And suddenly um, there was an album there. And I really, really loved that. It was such a quick process. Didn't have to think about it too much. And um, yeah, it was it was really good. Blimey, that was nine. Yes, that was first fruits, wasn't it? Yeah, first fruits. Yeah. In, did you? Was there ever discussions about sort of whose songs were going to appear on it, or did it? No, just... this is. It just it just never came up. I think it was one of those things that I mean, when you talk about sort of group dynamics. Um, oh, have I lost you? Oh no, I've got you. Um, that was one of the things that was a kind of. Uh, well, I don't know. I think it was an I think it was an unwritten rule that we didn't kind of question. Um, and I think once we sort of I, I don't know how much that was sort of um, agreed within creation as well. So it was just it was just something we never we never challenged. Yes. So when you came to do your next album, the fifth album, which is mm. Common Kids, mm. was the band still able to muster excitement? Because you were back in Rockfields at this stage, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Uh, uh, no, for that album, yes, absolutely. I mean, I remember being so excited when I first heard the demos for that album because it felt like uh, wake the wake up period was really, really exciting. I didn't like that album. Um, I, I think at the time it was fine, but I look back now and it's not an album I like. Um, and so sort of going around and flogging that all the time wasn't exciting for me but um when i sort of heard the demos for come on kids i was i was really excited i thought this is absolutely brilliant this is the sort of stuff that we should be doing this is what we're good at it's adventurous it's eclectic it's it's a chance for us to try out lots of different styles and things so absolutely yeah no i think we got very excited about that you know and it was a chance to sort of you know we'd had this big album and it was a chance to make a bigger and better album so we were um, yes I think the I think the disappointment with the way that was received um, affected us quite badly. I think that was kind of um, I think that was the sort of beginning of the end, really, because I think that that really did affect us quite badly. Um, I think that was the, we 
we toured that album a bit, I think, but that was when we kind of we went we went back over to America and were touring that album. And it was a real shame because I think we became, I think at that stage, we became a really good live band. I think before we were kind of okay. But I think around that album, I think actually we really sort of hit our stride and we became a very, very good live band. Yes. Um, and I really, really enjoyed drawing America with that album. But um yeah, it was it was it was um it was just kind of almost written off as a kind of um I don't know, it, it seems strange that people kind of thought it was our attempt to sort of scare people off or to to write something that was kind of, I don't know, incomprehensible or difficult or something. And that was never our intention. No. So when you came to sort of record King Size, was the mm. band having existential problems at this point yeah i think so i mean i look i didn't we didn't think about it at the time but looking back um yeah i think we i mean i i think we were just tired i think we were tired and worn out and i think we were sort of disappointed um with what had, what had gone on um i think that um i mean i look back and i think that you know the same thing was going on in creation records as well which i think probably didn't help because i don't think we really had anybody sort of gene us along i think we were left to our own devices and i don't think i went down the studio very much to be honest while king size was going on and was um, what had alan's health was that well alan was back at that point alan 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 went down 94 and came back sort of on the scene fully around 96 97 i think um but was fully sort of involved in i mean that was the whole uh tony blair thing that was where he got really yes. involved with kind of new labor and and alan was actually sort of that was the period where we were signing very odd stuff you know he was signing kevin Rowland um for my beauty and uh, i can't remember some of the some other people so so alan was around i remember him coming down the studio once for he never came out to rockfield um, but he came down when we were recording in air studios for King Size and he came down um, and yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I remember having strange discussions with Alan about what he thought the single should be off the album. Was that Free Huey? Was that the... Yeah, which again was I don't know why that that Al, that was sort of almost written specially for, and I can't remember at whose behest. I can't remember whether album we we went in and we recorded that as an extra track and almost as a single. Um, I don't know whether they felt the album was too sort of medium paced or something, and it needed something a bit more, a bit more Fat Boy Slim, um, a bit more kind of jumping. So um, so Free Huey kind of was the one. Yes, um, mm. and but you got songs on there like "Jimmy Webb is God." Mm, mm. Did you did you sort of did you enjoy the material that Martin had written at this stage? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I look back and now, and I think I didn't engage with with it a lot. I think I think we were just tired, and I think what what we needed at that point was a hiatus. I mean, I think the material's great. I look back now, and I think you know there is some absolutely fabulous material on that album, and I really really like that as an album. Um, I think it's probably my second favourite. But I just think we were all, I think Martin was, I think I was. Tim, Tim, not so much. I think Tim was, because Tim is such a, 
a studio head. I mean, Tim's absolutely brilliant in the, the studio. You know, he's the driving force in the studio. And so I think that album is his. You know, I think he was there. He was there every day at the desk. He was working on it and, and making it happen. I don't think it would have happened. Well, it wouldn't have happened without him. Um, so I think it's a great album. I just think at the time I was just tired and I'd had enough. And, yes. you know, because we had we had been at this for probably about 12 years at that point, you know, from if we take from sort of when we first started playing about 1987, we'd been going at it for about 12 years. And so I think we just all needed a break. I know it does happen. So did you, did you have that, did you tour that particular album or by then? No, no. Um, we did one. The, the only thing we ever did was a, a Bernard Lemoyne session in in Paris, um, Bernard Lenoir was sort of the French uh, John Peel, who would um, sort of have bands over and play play live to a studio audience, but it would be recorded as well. So we went over and we played. We we I don't think we played all that album, but we played a lot of it, and that was the only the only time we did it. Um, we might have done an in store, but but really no, I think that was, and and there mustn't have been any plans to. Um, to do it as well because uh, i think at that time creation probably made the decision to uh to fold so i don't know whether the album i don't know i mean it certainly there wasn't a second single released off the album well, I, mean... um, I think king size the song was um slated to be the second single but it didn't happen so did did the band sit down as a as a a unit and have a discussion about what was going to happen next well i remember we had i remember we had a discussion um with management about there being no creation and i remember i can't remember who was the enthusiasm but they were sort of trying to get enthusiasm up to sign for another label to keep going and i just remember there being not a lot of enthusiasm in the room um and then um so i don't think the band really had that discussion i think martin just um phoned me i think uh not long after that and just said i don't want to do another album and i said great um he said but i don't think tim and rob are going to be pleased so um so we then drove up um to liverpool because we me and martin were living in london so we drove up to Liverpool and had a sort of, I mean, it, Tim had a baby by then. So um, it was really just to tell them, you know, this is the decision kind of thing. And and obviously they weren't happy about it. Um, but it just felt like the right thing. You know, everything at that moment was kind of saying, OK, it's time to stop. You know, creation had gone down. We weren't selling any records. Interest had been lost. You know, really nobody cared, yes. and we were and we were all tired. So I, I, I think it would have been very, very difficult for us to find the wherewithal to carry on. I, I do say now, and you know, it might not have made a difference, but I do say we could have done with someone with a wise head saying, "Look, why don't you just take a couple of years off? You know, don't split up. Don't say you split up. Just, just go off, take a few years, do what you want to do, and then see where you are in two or three years." Um, yes. that, that might have made a difference but actually you know things have worked out well the way they worked out so i know it's a tricky one isn't it because i guess mm. most people say the same thing you know god we should have just had a break but then you wonder would that have just led to another 10 years down the line well exactly i, I think mm-hmm. so you know you, i think you know we may have come back and just yeah may have been just another a disappointing comeback you know or we might not have liked what we were doing i mean i think i'm very very glad that i got a chance to grow 
into something else out of the um the environment of a band really. how long did it take to um get yourself into the next phase of life because that's often quite tricky isn't it it was it was very tricky it was very tricky and i really struggled um i kind of delayed it for a while because um we had children me and my wife had children and she very generously sort of um allowed me to be um sort of stay-at-home dad so that was my so for sort of four or five years I was content that that was my prime responsibility, but then quite rightly, she would say, well, look, you know, you need something else now. You need to be thinking about um, getting involved in something else. And it just terrified me. Um, and I actually went back into music. I produced a solo band project called Paperlong um, and and were kind of back out on the road. And then that kind of led to a bit of a, a bit of a meeting, shall we say, with me and my wife, who quite reasonably said, "What the hell are you doing? You know, this is just ridiculous." Um, and and so then um, that was when I sort of realised, God, you know, I'm I'm going to have to retrain. I'm going to have to, you know, I want to I want a purpose. I don't just want a job. I want a purpose. So um, so yeah. So about 2007, that was when I sort of started the long road to training as a as a psychologist. Yes, my God, what? Because mm. I, I remember a member of um, Mega City Four just said he was shell shocked. You know, most most people are mm. a bit shell shocked. It's like that's all I've done since the age of sixteen, mm. yeah. and I've been doing it for ten years. Mm. I don't know what else I can do. And yeah. the, the band is over. We've got no money. I've got mm. no nothing in the bank. Yeah. You know, and in some cases, you know, there was an unpaid tax bill, so suddenly everyone had to sell yeah. all their kind of stuff, so they didn't even have a guitar just yeah. walking around completely dazed, completely mm. broken, and then literally going, picking themselves up from nothing. But yeah, yeah. It, it's it's quite, I, I mean, you know, that was that was fairly much, I mean, I, we'd always been fairly sensible. So, um, so we didn't thankfully have the sort of massive tax bill. Um, but yeah, the absolute daze was, was just, you know, in my mind, from the moment I saw Top of the Pops, that was all I wanted to do with my life. And and I envisaged that I, that was all I was going to be doing, that, that it would never change. And there's suddenly it's been a different reality of kind of, well, you've done it and it's gone. And yeah, absolute shell shock to kind of think, um, you know, what do I do now? And it took a long, long time, I think, to, to sort of reconcile that in my mind to see a different future um because it is a very it's a very very strange thing to have to you know at the age of sort of 37 I had to go back and do my full undergraduate degree um in psychology and of course I'm sort of in classes with 18 19 year olds and you know and and of course people are kind of saying oh what, what did you used to do and it's a very very strange thing to say well I was in a band and have to sort of explain who you are and stuff i thank i thank god for youtube because i can now just say just go and look at the boo radley's on youtube <laughs> and of course people come back going oh my god i know that song yeah you know, whereas whereas before i'd be having to stand at the school gates kind of half singing half humming wake up boo to trying to to say who i who i was Yes, it was the yeah. nostalgia market is kind of took a few more years to catch up. But it was interesting because yeah. I remember sort of being fascinated with, you know, a lot of different people and 
I've interviewed, but I'd never interviewed her, but I interviewed a lot of members around her, <laughs> Suzanne Vega, because I thought, God, there's a person mm. who played guitar, da, 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 got an album, thought they'd sell, you know, 20,000 copies. Suddenly it was like millions worldwide, you know, suddenly, oh, God, the second album, I've got nothing. Okay, you're going to have to record a second, then a third. And then it was literally, you know, headline Glastonbury on a Saturday night. It was like, wow, that's amazing. They even got a death threat, which was even more amazing. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it was like everything was over. And it was like, that's that's it. It's all gone, Suzanne. You know, you now, you know, people go, where's your limone- lim- limousine? Mm-hmm. And like, no, I'm just going to have to get the bus now. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, it's that kind. I just think, how can you, you know, literally pick yourself up and, and think about what to do? Next? Have you read um, Exit Stage Left? Yes. Nick Durden. That's a great book. That's a great book. That's um, uh, just all about that. You know what people do after that moment has happened. You know after you've passed through it, and yeah, everybody has to kind of um, has to negotiate that. Everybody has to kind of, you know, come to terms with a new, new identity. And you know, I actually kind of I I'm glad it happened that way because I was able to sort of I, I, I think I had to kind of deal with the real me rather than the kind of a fantasy of you that you that we often carry around in our heads yes um you know when you're in the music business i think you or you're in a band you do carry a fantasy around in your head of who you are and that's not reality and um and it's good to it was good to kind of live back in reality for a while yes absolutely um, but did you see the the film that dunstan from dunce from chumbawamba made and he did a, a one-man show with it as well no i want to see that actually yeah absolutely yeah i saw the trailer for it and i thought i must watch that um is it good it's very good yeah mm. i mean yeah i mean it it's so it's good on very you know it's just an interesting thing you know it's almost but it's i don't know trying to answer that concisely I, th- I suppose it's kind of interesting like and he does answer it himself I'm not answering this at all well am I it's a fascinating <laughs> thing it's a fascinating thing about like well on one level yes we all feel sad on another level it's like well so what you know it's like and then I thought I wonder if a woman would make a film like that or whether it's more of a bloke who gets lost in well I'm in a band I'm you know I'm an anarchist mm. in a band and we we used to love being on stage and now I'm not on stage jumping about anymore and it and it's kind of an interesting there was a lot of things about it that I thought about afterwards so it is a good film but there are things that you'd also wonder as at the same time like well but why why are we that interested in what happens to a person who was once in the band at the same time Mm. even though one can empathize that it must be very strange it's also it's like well there's a lot going on we can't we can't all stand around feeling a bit sorry for somebody who's no longer gonna be able to have that excitement of a big crowd cheering you on and uh, yeah so so i didn't answer that very well but no 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 i think you did it's a great it's a great film that will make you think and then he did a, a live show which leads to your recent activity with the band Mm. so how did Mm. all that and your latest album and your also got a show as well so yeah yeah um so um it came about it was really really unintended it came about uh pre-covid um i was i had a 50th birthday party um and and tim came over to that and it really just i mean we 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 sort of sent the odd email and we you know we remained friendly but we weren't sort of closer in each other's pockets and he just said you know oh, i've been working on some stuff do you want to do you want to sing on it he'd he'd actually been asking me for this for a while um and i kind of i think i was just very very busy training and running a private practice so um 
Um, so, but, but 2019, by that stage, our kids had got older, they'd moved on and, and actually realized that, yeah, I did have a bit of time. And I think I'd actually done a couple of acoustic things by that point as well. I think I was sort of slowly being tempted back onto the stage. Um, I'd actually sang Wake Up Boo at a friend's wedding about 2018 <laughs> so I think that was kind of um with the live band there so I think that was kind of the reintroduction but basically yeah me and Tim started kind of file sharing swapping stuff songs um and it just kind of grew from there Tim's a very good guitarist so he just put guitar down we got Rob to play um drums on it and then suddenly we found ourselves with a sort of pretty much completed album and then um, you know, the tricky thing was kind of, okay, well, will Martin want to be in this? And and I felt very, very odd about not doing it. I was very sort of um, conflicted. So went up to see him um, in Cardiff, spent the day with him in Cardiff and said, you know, look, do you want to, we've done this. Um, but I don't, th- I think he felt very odd about it. I think the fact that it was done differently to how the band used to work, which I think was probably... Um, probably something that was unconsciously deliberate on our part you know we wanted to do something slightly different um so martin decided he didn't want to be involved um so we we just kind of thought right okay well this is we've got this album it is the boo radleys it sounds like the boo radleys so we we prevaricated a long time about whether to use the name um we talked to a lot of people and somebody eventually said look if you don't use the name you're just three 50 year old guys putting music out and nobody's gonna care so it was kind of well okay it's just the name um so that was it really um you know album came out and more than anything we've absolutely loved the live shows we've absolutely loved being able to get back out on stage and and it's like you say that i can sort of i can really understand that thing about dunston you know um about just wanting to be back out on a stage and um and mickey actually in her book said it great said you know i I wish there was a door in my living room that would that would just open up and take me out onto the stage so i can play a gig and then just come back into my living room because that's the thing that we absolutely love that's the thing that you never lose um you know the rest of it the recording studios the traveling the videos the photo shoots everything take it or leave it but but the live thing being on stage and playing music with a group of people to to um the people who want to hear you that's that's just incredible yeah absolutely create that and did you and do the fans not really care that martin's not part of it um surprisingly not um i mean it's difficult to know um because i guess those that those that do care probably wouldn't come to the shows but um I think they've been sort of pleasantly surprised. I think um, that um, that we we very much sound the same. We sound very very similar. I think yeah. I think some people don't like the idea of it, but I think the reality of it, especially when this year we went out and we played Giant Steps in its entirety, um, and it sounded incredible. I think people are sort of relieved by that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think some people are a bit aggrieved by it, but I think also some people are kind of, um, I guess, uh, interested to, um, how shall I put it, interested to see that Martin wasn't just the only part of the band that mattered. Yes, that's fair enough. Yes. So obviously that was such a success. You thought, this is it. We're not. We're going to keep the baton and keep going with it. 
So then you recorded yeah. that was that was keep on with keep falling, on with wasn't falling, it? yeah, yeah. And then you thought, so when you followed up with eight, did you mm. just were, did you have material to record already, or were you just all on a creative role? Bit of both. We were on a creative role. Role. Um, we were kind of we were both writing, and we also had stuff that um, what that we were passing backwards and forth and creating. So actually, a lot of the stuff I don't know about Tim, but a lot of the stuff that kind of originated with me on eight was all new. Um, but I just loved that process of I would kind of basically write the song, which was no more than a sort of guide guitar and a vocal, and I'd sort of hand it over to Tim and and see what he would make of it which I absolutely loved because sometimes it would come back completely different to how I'd first heard it so it was a far more kind of collaborative thing um with this album the first would keep on with falling the, the songs were pretty much in their shape um but with this it was a lot more collaborative and we were sending a lot more files backwards and forwards and kind of and getting together and working on stuff so yeah it was it's far more of a collaborative album and was it tim who's kind of set up the label then for the band the the label was set up because we were kind of um i can't remember who we were talking to but we were sort of looking for a label and then someone basically said, well, you don't really need a label. You know, you can sort of set it up yourself. You can do it as your, your own label and release it with distribution. So we kind of said, OK, fair enough. You know, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to have to deal with a label. So we'll do it ourselves. Um, it seems to um, it's probably a lot more work than we would like. Um, it would be nice to sometimes have somebody else looking after this stuff. And uh, and hopefully we might have somebody. But um uh yeah it's 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 good it's nice yeah do you do you find and this is something that i'd sort of I, I thought about i think there's a sort of a period a passing of time of like 25 30 years where something happens and we just all get on with the rest of our lives and then you have that moment to reflect and start thinking actually that was quite good back in the 80s there was a lot more mm. interesting stuff than i remember and i just wondered if your sort of so-called comeback was good timing in the sense of now being able to sort of go back and listen to those original albums and the people coming to see your shows have got that you know time as well to yeah think yes i will go out and and see the band and there's also people who are discovering the band for the first time as well yeah yeah i mean one one of the great things that we've had along tour is people bringing their kids along you know that's one of the things that's been absolutely incredible you know having literally families coming along and and you know 50 year old blokes kind of saying you know you were the first band i got into and i've been playing them everywhere and my kids are here you know they're 17 18 whatever and they love them as well so you know that that kind of thing is 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 absolutely incredible and i think it's that thing where that's why i'm glad i had time away from it because it helps me appreciate it a bit more um you know it helps me kind of appreciate what it takes to sort of the, the privilege of being able to be on a stage and play and and I do look back at it um very differently now you know I I, I think um I look back on on that kind of period we were making music and I'm I'm a lot more interested in the kind of cultural and political landscape that was going on at that time rather than the I guess the kind of musical one which we were very much tied up in but actually with a bit of distance you're able to kind of see what we were kind of part of yes. um you know as you were saying kind of coming out of Thatcher's 80s and going into this kind of new representing this kind of almost this new hopefulness that new labor represented and the music was kind of Britpop was all part of that this kind of building you know whether it was kind of Thatcher's children sort of 
building towards something when they can be finally rid. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's also the things like the use of the Union Jack was quite interesting at that stage, wasn't there? And there's well, much yeah. more, a much more full employment as well. There was suddenly that sense there wasn't the the feeling in the 80s of the not the anarcho-punk period and sort of red wedge and stuff like that it was much more optimistic and people were sort of there was more money about and then by the late 90s it was so much more money about so it Mm. felt very well that was the thing that's the really interesting thing of how quickly it tipped over into kind of a a kind of hedonism that, that i don't think was particularly healthy you know along with the money came the sort of rise of kind of um of disposable income you know and it was disposed a lot of it was disposed on cocaine and it's kind of um you know that was the element of that sort of era that i didn't particularly enjoy i really like the sort of political um kind of feminist stuff of nirvana i thought that was really interesting that actually that was the stuff i was interested in and i just suddenly felt that things got massively dumbed down about 94 95 you know there weren't a lot of people in the music business that i enjoyed talking to anymore you know it was it really was you know um it's like jarvis says you know the kind of geezer sorted and that's as far as the conversation went you know it, it was unfortunately it did get a bit like that well there was those horrendous magazines like loaded and maxim and mm. you know the lad culture mickey kind of writes about it and talks about mm-hmm. it doesn't she a lot of yeah. what she had to be put through and mm-hmm. you know people like the bass player from blur <laughs> indeed yes absolutely yeah and members um, of the red hot chili peppers and all that mm-hmm. kind of bunch it's like oh dear that was a shame so it's interesting in the sense of when something gets to be good it also gets to be really tacky as well so mm-hmm. it's it's a yeah. it's so different to the 80s it'll be interesting to see mm-hmm. how it how it's fared so then you've also got a solo show that you're you're touring mm-hmm. as well yeah. so how did yeah. and and where did this idea come from this idea really is that you know it's it's kind of i think probably the two passions in my life you know music and and over the last sort of you know how long 15 years uh, psychology has been my passion you know I'm, I'm a psychologist in private practice I see clients every week and I really wanted to kind of one bring the two things together but two I love the kind of educative aspects of psychology I kind of want to be able to talk about those you know and I'm used to kind of connecting with an audience um, so I really want to kind of create a show that's interesting and that's fun but kind of covers aspects of a kind of mental health the thing for me is that actually you know there's there's a lot of kind of awareness of mental health now but it's such a kind of large confusing area that I kind of think how do people get their heads around it you know how do people you know I studied for sort of seven years for all this stuff so how do people have these kind of conversations um without kind of knowing what's really going on um so so I kind of you know just simple it's kind of you know if somebody has issues with their mental health and decides to need help you know what's what's the difference between a psychotherapist a psychologist a psychoanalyst a psychiatrist you know how does somebody sort of negotiate this kind of whole morass of information so um so basically i want to put sort of music and 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 mental health and a show together that's basically sort of a talking about um everything we've just been talking about basically which is you know how do you how do you find happiness you know how do you find how do you locate happiness i thought that you know being a pop star being on top of the pops 
that would bring happiness and achieved all that. Mm. But it didn't. But it didn't. You know, it didn't sort of bring along this permanent state of happiness. So, you know, the question is, is that kind of, um, you know, I then go into it with psychology and, well, what does psychology say about happiness? You know, what does that have to say? So it's a kind of, yeah, it's a one-man show um, and starts on Thursday. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yes. And happiness, how does that kind of marry with contentment? Are the two... (laughs) Uh, yeah now you're getting down to it um that's that that's without kind of giving away too much that's got you kind of hit the nail on the head really um you know it, it depends how you define happiness the problem is is that happiness i think is a fleeting thing happiness is one of those things that we get when something exciting happens um whereas contentment i think is far more um it's far it's far more able to be permanent it's far more there are you know because there are um studies you know there's enough been lottery winners around the world now that have had psychological studies shown that you know when people win the lottery obviously they're elated their happiness levels kind of go through the roof but very very quickly they just return to normal you know within Mm. a matter of days weeks you know um and so it returns to normal. So so the idea of happiness is a difficult one. Contentment, absolutely. I think if we frame something as contentment, because contentment means um, being OK with the way things are. Um, now, that doesn't have to meet certain conditions in order for us to be content. Yeah. So um, so so that, yes, that's a, that's a big, big part of it. Because because the 90s, you know, on one level. You know, we had more employment, but we also had more processed food. We had more obesity, much more waste, much more plastic, disposable. Mm. Everything is is like everything was a sugar rush. You know, mm. it's very simplistic, wasn't it? But, you know, when you listen to people talking through the post-war years, you know, they had so little, but mm. then they were healthier. They were much more contented. They were, they had a much more sort of real sense of how things mm. worked. You know, they mm. didn't think, oh, God, I'm not very happy. I'll go get on a plane and fly to the other side of the world for a long weekend. It was like, well, I might go to Yarmouth for an afternoon if you're lucky. But generally, you know, the food was better. It was smaller proportions. The you know the nineties was was on one level a really gross decade, wasn't it? Mm. Well, that... it's a very it's a very interesting thing because I think there's sort of um, you know what you're talking about. Excuse me, I think I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> excuse me. That kind of post-war era, and we saw it with COVID, is you know when people come together, when they feel part of a larger community, when they feel that there is a um, a collective culture going on um as opposed to i think the 90s which was far more kind of individualistic and i think has probably um you know probably played a part in the kind of rise of narcissism that we kind of see with social media you know everything is about posting it's about me 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 i you know even though facebook twitter these things pretend to be communities they're not they're individuals operating on their own with a phone so i think a lot of it is to do i mean it's interesting those those kind of you know what is it about the sort of the 90s the the excesses i suppose that's what it is i suppose that's what you're saying is that, that everything suddenly became about excesses whereas um um, you know, when we pull together, when we're a community, people seem to be um, healthier. You know, uh, uh, the people do seem to be healthier. Yes. I think it's that thing about the whole, you know, COVID, you know, it was I was talking with my wife earlier today, you know, that it's kind of, you know, this was one of the things that was actually one of these kind of world 
kind of um, catastrophes that we kind of all talk about, you know, a global pandemic. Um, and yet we we pulled together and we got through it. And now we look back at these sort of things that we did that we just accepted, you know, that we just got on with as a society, you know, the fact that you had to have six feet behind you, you queue at the supermarket, all those things that we talk about, like rationing and things. Well, it was the same. It was, but we, it was. But we, but we seem to have a community spirit about it. We seem to have, you know, we would thank the NHS. People would be kinder to other people. People would be buying shopping for people who were um, uh, who were infirm or unable to do their own shopping and things. So there was a just, I, I think, you know, there's something there about that we miss about community. Yes, but then conspiracies, the conspiracy theories come up, and then that that whole like a kind of not disease, but um, well, yes, something like that. You know, it's <laughs> like wow, that's amazing. So people have really put all these little random, like Darren Brown says, you find all these random things, and you then find a narrative, and you've got a lovely story. Whereas actually, perhaps they were just a lot of random things. That's a very, very good point. And I was actually saying this to my daughter last night um, that saying um, because I think she'd just come back from the pub and there'd been a conspiracy theorist there. And I'm saying, you know, absolutely what what scared people most about um, the theory of evolution whenever when Charles Darwin um, was was, you know, Charles Darwin sat on the theory of evolution for about 20 years. And it wasn't because of uh, that it was against religion. It was because it put out there a world that was random and chaotic that's what it basically said the world is not ordered you know there's no god who puts these things in place who creates these things this is we developed how we are because of randomness and chaos and i think you know that's what conspiracy theorists find so hard to get their hand head around you know it's easier to believe that there's someone in charge even if it's a kind of um a kind of um Illuminati, who is who is um, who is a, a kind of bad bad actor, um, they prefer to think that's the case yes. rather than that rather than that no one's in charge. You know that's that right. this whole this is just chaotic. A basement in a pizza place is is <laughs> with Bill with Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. They controlled it's... the whole thing. Even though if the basement doesn't exist, it's still, mm. it, you know, you've got to try and fit that narrative because. Mm. But then there's a sense with those kind of ideas of feeling much more superior and like, yes, I can see the big picture. You mm. can't. And, you, you know, so I already feel superior to people like me who think, mm, I'm not sure about the pizza basement. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there even is one from people mm-hmm. who have gone there. So it's kind of interesting. There's this kind of weird competition because, you know, that's for a lot of people gives them significance and a feeling of importance and a voice. Yeah, yeah. completely. And I think, you know, I think it is um, it is a kind of. Uh, it's something that we should expect, really, given that, you know, the media is. Um, it is one version of the truth and it has been um, a very kind of sanitized version of the truth, I guess, you know, and so it's understandable that people would start going out and looking for their own information and find information that appeals. You know, there are thousands and thousands of ways of understanding the world. And, you know, what we see through mainstream media is one way of understanding the world, but it isn't the real one. Um, You know, so I think it's, it's an interesting one about kind of looking for um, different narratives. People, will look for different narratives and find a way to understand the world yes Um, you know and there are plenty of those out there there's a lot so with your show it starts on thursday doesn't it thursday yeah 
show and um and it runs for quite a bit doesn't it uh, to, to the end of september so um so i've got three this weekend so i'm going to do um tame in oxfordshire i'm going to do uh boscombe in near bournemouth and then leeds there's one in leeds and then there's a bit of a gap till the weekend after and then we do liverpool uh aberystwyth swansea and then down to padstow exeter <laughs> Uh, I remember Cheltenham, Trowbridge, and we finish in London. Fantastic. I think, I think that's all of them. And tickets are available. Uh, yeah, if you Google, if you Google the secret of happiness and any of those towns, you'll you'll find ticket links. There's a ticket link, but it's uh, it's quite a long. Is one. this the first time you've done this, by the way? No, I did a little trial back in March. I did sort of six dates back in March. Um, a, a, a sort of an appointment with Dr. Sice, which was a slightly different format. Um, that was a really tester to sort of see you know what people are actually interested in um whether it's the kind of music stuff and actually what i found was that the thing that people most engaged with was the sort of mental health stuff that seemed to be what people wanted to sort of hear more about um so that's why this has a more focus on that yes god well look this is amazing you must come to norwich one day that'll be fantastic too um... i used to I, my son went to my went to uni at norwich i used to be in norwich quite a lot for three years right yes <laughs> yeah but, but i'd love to did you put this together or did you have somebody help you? No, put it together. Uh, this is something that I've kind of done uh, with me and my wife. My wife used to work for our management company um, back in the 90s. So um, so she's very capable. So we, we've kind of really just kind of hired the venues, done the promo ourselves, um, just got out there really. Fantastic. Well, look, I hope mm. it really goes well and hopefully you'll do it Thank again you, and come to Norwich. It's... I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to. Yeah. yeah yes. Try and, just, try and do that for next year. But And also, good luck on the tour for the... the Thank you. The yes. Yes. We're out again with Cud. Um, yes. So, and uh, the end of the end of October, beginning of November. So that'll be Fantastic really band. Yes. Good old... I guess the Cherry Red record compilations, these... Mm ones that they keep putting out from c81 to 91 no c86 to 91 and then their other random ones all help with the bands don't they yeah absolutely i mean we didn't sort of realize you know how i suppose they call it legacy or heritage Heritage, but actually, yeah, I mean, people people are clamouring for it, especially with the resurgence in vinyl now. You know, um, it, it's a it's a really good thing. It's really nice. Yes, well, it's brilliant. Well, look, best of luck for the rest of the year, and um, thank you, David. All the best with the next um, next adventures. Anyway, look, take care. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks well, a lot, and I'll send you the link as well. Okay, excellent. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. And that, dear listener. Is the end of the interview? Well, you probably guessed that anyway. Massive thank you to Simon Rowbottoms for um, giving me the time for that interview. Um, as I said, I'll uh, put the links in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And these have all been archived, these being the interviews. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.